so this week I got a message from Alicia from California, uh-huh. Dr. Alicia. Uh-huh. And um, she sent this to me on private message or on my Instagram. So I hope she doesn't get mad at me for this. (laughs) But she has a guy at her gym that looks like producer. And he he came over and asked her how, um, what her tanning salon was. (laughs) Wait, what? Uh, This story is getting crazy. Yeah. Off the rails already. And obviously she doesn't tan she's just not a white woman yeah and she she was like um i don't tan and he was like but it's so even all over your body (laughs) like that's how skin works and then she was like and now when i see him i think i bet ali's husband would never say that no god he (laughs) would never never Never, ever ever. it was just so funny (laughs) you know you know it's really funny too that you mentioned that i almost sent you an instagram story today that was this girl (laughs) It was like me in the, you know, 2000s. And it was like, what sticker am I going to place on my hip, like on my bikini line <laughs> when I go to the tanning, tanning salon? The little Playboy bunny or the yes! jumping dolphin? It's literally like a dolphin, a Playboy bunny, yes. lips, a heart. Perfect. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, Allie did all of these. I know. <laughs> it was like a really special time. The early 2000s were a special, special time. Oh, oh my god, brother! But we're not here to talk about tanning salons. Which please no, don't do that. It's bad for please. your health. <laughs> uh, we're here to talk about history on the rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we're drinking the entire time. And we are not historians, so forgive our faux pas, yes. our mispronunciations, our blatant lack of knowledge about the world, uh, uh, and anything in between. And we welcome your suggestions. Yes, uh, especially mine. I'm talking about a lot of like Navajo politics which is no a idea. very intense world. And <laughs> really, really and truly. <laughs> so I just kind of refer to like, I think I refer to a lot of things as like the tribal council. Okay. And I don't know at what point whether it splits off into something else. Okay, because that's like from the show Survivor. <laughs> really? <laughs> they would vote at the end at the tribal council, <laughs> which now I'm realizing is really terrible. <laughs> yeah, because I know it is. there is a tribal council. <laughs> oh, great. I know that part is real. Awesome. Um, <laughs> but anyways... Uh, <laughs> We'll get into that later. Yeah, but you are busy trying Mm -hmm. to erase the memories of Survivor out of your brain and like what Richard did with like all his money and why he went to tax fraud and whatnot. Yes. So right now you're on kind of a social media diet because your Instagram algorithm is filled with Survivor stuff. Crazy. Um, So you can't go on there. You can't Uh, go on Google. It's everywhere. Richard has occupied your life. Rob and Amy got married. I don't know if they're still (laughs) together. It's really confusing to me. Um, But podcasts are okay. Yeah. So while you're listening, you may wonder, what do these women look like? I wish I could look them up, but I can't right. because I'm banned from Google. Uh-huh. Um, so we're going to describe them for you so you can stick to your guns. <laughs> um, we're going to get a little physical, physical. Ellie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I am doing Anne Preston. Anne Preston is a white American woman who has a long oval face with a sharp nose and a heavily hooded eye. She typically wore her hair parted down the middle and pulled back into a bun. Uh, She was usually in a high collared Victorian dress with white lace around the edges. She is literally culturally 1800s American woman. That's just sounds like Tweety Bird's grandmother. Yes. Only younger. 
owner. You're right. Not grandmother. Owner. Yeah, yeah. Tweety, tweety Bird's <laughs> that would be slave bird. owner. Like, locked her up. Him, him. Tweety Bird to him. Um, yeah, she just looks like every, like, of one of those little oval pictures yep. from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay. Yeah, yep. that's cool. Typical. She's much cooler in real life than her picture. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, who are you doing and what does she look like? Okay, I'm doing Annie Dodge Waneka. Annie was a petite Native American woman with rounded features and high cheekbones. Her salt and pepper hair was always pulled back into two buns, or it seemed, like kind of one on top of each other, kind of very um, rogue one lady. Yeah. Whatever her name is. Mm-hmm. Um Ray. Right. Yes. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm here for um, the Star Wars. Thank you. Misty, did you hear it? <laughs> but yeah, like two, but they were lower. So like two low buns, it seemed on top of each other. Yes. Um, she had a kind and she had a kind smile. She could typically be seen wearing horn rimmed glasses, uh, traditional Navajo dresses and long beaded jewelry. She wore her people's clothing proudly, especially when she was on the streets of Washington, D.C. And when people asked her why she was wearing such strange clothing, she said, I didn't take it as offensive. I took it as an opportunity to educate them. And that is what Annie Dodge Waneka looked like. This is exciting. We have an yes. Anne and an Annie. Yes. I love that. Um, and I am so ready to get into this. Do you want to know what you're yes. drinking? It looks delightful. So it's a nice little pink drink, a milky pink drink. Mm-hmm. And it's called Laying in Department. Ooh, okay. We'll find out why later. <laughs> and it is gin, almond liqueur, creme de cocoa, half and half. And cherry juice. Ooh. And then on top, you sprinkle nutmeg and you put a cinnamon stick in ah, it. Delightful. So, cheers. cheers. Mm. I mean, it is really good. It's like a strawberry. I don't even say strawberry milkshake. It tastes kind of like eggnog. It tastes like eggnog, but with a little bit of cherry yeah. added to Which it. Which so- sounds kind of crazy, but it is nice. No, it's super nice. Because, yeah, the... Because it has that little almondy taste to it, and then the cherry, and it, and all this nutmeg, and it's creamy, and it's really delicious. Yeah, I love it. It's like pink eggnog. Yeah. <laughs> and I was telling Katie off mic that I was at a party this weekend, and a friend's husband was just like, hey, have you ever made this cocktail? Because I think at one point I was just like, there's only so many ingredients. At some point it's like a taco, taco versus burrito. It's just the yeah. same thing in a different mm-hmm. order. Yeah. So this was really nice when he like sent me this link he was like i think if you i think it's called a pink flamingo perfect um but it's a version of that excellent okay so what do you know about Anne preston i feel like she was a female doctor Uh i don't know if she was the first i don't know if she was a surgeon that's also ringing a bell in my head i'm guessing she worked during the civil war um other than that, I really don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anne Preston, is a, she's a really interesting woman in American history. She's got a, a relatively short story, but did so much with her life that I am really excited to talk about her and okay. get on in it. So Anne was born in 1813 in West Grove, Pennsylvania, which is right outside of Philadelphia which I love Philly. Mm-hmm. They're our cooler, older cousin. <laughs> she had a prosperous farmer father, Amos Preston, and her mom's name was Margaret Smith Preston. They were Quakers, and she ha- was one of eight siblings. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 
Of the family's three daughters, though, she was the only girl to survive to adulthood. <gasps> so, oh, you know, the infant mortality rate was just so much higher oh, back yeah. then. Mm-hmm. Um, famous Quaker women's rights activist Lucretia Mott was a friend of their family <laughs> and would go over and have dinner <laughs> with Casual, them all okay. the time. <laughs> <laughs> good to see you i think she i think they're buried next to each other like in the same graveyard still in north I philly like we could go see that. Anne and lucretia we on have to do a day like, trip a grave day trip <laughs> to, philly. to philly we need to do like a history on the road to i agree philly. and it's like just like soon two for seconds anything. away we can do there's so many things in baltimore too it's crazy that's true but philly yes i love i love okay um, Anne was educated in a local Quaker school and briefly atta- attained a Quaker, um, like, uh, like a briefly attended a Quaker boarding school. So okay. she was going to formal schooling and boarding schooling all in Pennsylvania. Okay. As we know from former stories, Quakers are typically pretty cool. Oh, And this yeah. is why, like, when people are like, oh, it was of the time to think that way. I'm like, no, it wasn't. Not for everybody. <laughs> Quakers were calling people on their bullshit well before. <laughs> yeah. Like, they, there were people who were really woke, like, yeah. in the 1800s. So don't, like, pull, don't let people pull the wool over your eyes mm-hmm. and just be like, oh, it's just the way it was. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Okay. So her family was ardently abolitionist, as most Quakers are. Of course, they're also pro-temperance, <laughs> as Quakers are. You um, can't win them all. You can't. <laughs> her family was known as being a safe haven for escaped slaves. Um, but Quakers were also really into the women's rights movement in general. And one thing that I didn't know is that Quakers were a leading force in getting women into medicine and science. They Very were like, cool. STEM girl, STEM girl. <laughs> like, let's get it. That's perfect. Oh, my, source, my source today was a podcast called STEM Fatale, which I'm obsessed with that title. I wish I could think of things. Yeah. <laughs> Just anything. I would love to think of them because that's really cute. <laughs> so Anne's mother was frequently ill and Anne, as the eldest daughter, had to take responsibility for the younger siblings and the family just while her mom was kind of down and out this really interrupted her formal education that she had that quakers really like value yeah um so instead uh, in her free time and you know just any little scraps that she could pull together for herself she started attending these lectures at local literary societies and became a member of an anti-slavery society also she was a big activist with the women's rights movement obviously like aunt lucretia is just (laughs) hanging out um I hope she called her like Aunt Lucky. I think that'd be so <laughs> oh, cute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because there's not a good nickname for Lucretia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that was still a name. I don't hear it enough. <laughs> I saw a Everybody tweet. here to hear first. Name your daughter Lucretia and nickname her Lucky. I heard a tweet and the other she's day. She's a Lucky. <laughs> she's, a, sing she's a star. That song she's, to her. She's a star, but she cries, cries, cries. <laughs> I saw a tweet the other day that was like, my nine-year-old niece just said off the cuff, you know, she had a really old woman's name, like Jennifer or something. Oh, no. I was like, oh, we've made it. This is it. God, what are they going to think of us? We have the oldest names, Catherine and Alexandra. I feel like Jennifer is like a Ruth. Like, everybody was named Ruth. (laughs) 
<laughs> now it's almost like Jennifer. Catherine and Alexander are classic. What happened to Jenny from the block? <laughs> She's still She's Jenny from old. the block. Don't you know the song? I'm still, I'm, I'm still, still, I'm Jenny still. from the block. Don't be fooled oh, by the rocks Are there going to be any got. more, though? That's what I'm concerned about, that the world is going to be sincerely lacking in, in Jenny Jenny's? from the Blocks. I teach one Jennifer. Really? I teach one Jennifer. And does she go by Jen? She goes by Jennifer. Oh. Fool Jennifer. See, that's the difference. Yeah. No more nicknames in this town. No. <laughs> this town. <laughs> this town ain't big enough for the nicknames. <laughs> okay. So... Once Anne's siblings were old enough to care for themselves and each other and began to work as a local school teacher because that's what they did with women who had ambition. In 1849, she published a book of nursery rhymes called Cousin Anne's Stories. Oh, Just a little book. <laughs> you know, got to do something for yourself. I want to be Cousin Anne. That's so <laughs> Cousin nice. Cousin Anne's Stories. <laughs> because girls were restricted to, like, sedentary or indoor activities and dressed in really tight clothing and believed that women needed to know a lot more about their bodies and how to stay healthy. Totally so, true. Yes, very true. <laughs> Still now. <laughs> yeah. Can, we, can somebody please teach these girls something? <laughs> so by the 1840s, Anne became very interested in educating women about hygiene and physiology she was privately educated in medicine by apprenticing for a male doctor she of course was unable to gain admittance into medical school because of their policies against women so she studies for two years under this dr nathaniel mosley which again there were men that were willing to teach women medicine Mm -hmm. it wasn't like everybody was shutting people down Mm -hmm. Um, but she was rejected from most medical schools As we covered when we did the Elizabeth Blackwell story, she was the first female doctor in the U.S., Elizabeth Blackwell. But she got in through a loophole in admittance. And after Elizabeth Blackwell got in, they all rewrote their admittance stuff to kind of close the loophole. And Elizabeth Blackwell was really the only one that slipped through. Mm. And... Did decide, however, to enter this newly Quaker-founded female medical college in Pennsylvania. So at the age of 38, she's a student in its inaugural class. Mm -hmm. This was the first institution in the world that we know of. I'm not saying ancient Egypt didn't do this. I'm talking the modern world. Um, That was established to train women in medicine and offer them a degree in medicine. And she's like one of the founding members like of this institution. Ah, She's helping the Quakers to get this opened up. The first year, the faculty at the college was all men, which means there are men lined up to help teach women at this Quaker school. But by 1851, Hannah Longshore was selected as the demonstrator in female anatomy so that there could be a woman teaching women about the body. Because remember, they would like make Elizabeth Blackwell like stand outside (laughs) while the men learned about anatomy. (laughs) And like, come on, she's an adult. She's a fucking adult. That's crazy. So they had a female faculty member for that. She wrote in a letter to her friend. The joy of exploring a new field of knowledge, the rest from accustomed pursuits and cares, the stimulus of competition, the novelty of a new kind of life are all mine and all for the time that possesses a charm. And then I am restful in spirit and well satisfied that I came. Mm. 
she's so happy that somebody will let her use her brain. Right? Yeah. Like, thank you, everybody, for, like, actually caring. Mm. There's this um, scene or this character in um, Unbreakable Kimmy Smith. Have you watched any of that I show? I haven't, and I need to. It's I really feel like cute. it's right up my alley. You would love it. I'm up your alley. So... <laughs> I am your alley. If I were to make you a cocktail, it'd be called <laughs> Up My Alley. Up My Alley. <laughs> alley with an IE. Um, no, but there's this character who's like a rich trophy wife. And like she will out loud sometimes be like, I'm laughing because I don't use my brain and I have a degree from Princeton. <laughs> it's just like they have her say it out loud. And it's oh so my depressing. Gosh. <laughs> I feel for her. So now she's getting to use her brain. She graduated in 1851 as one of eight women awarded a medical degree from this college and then returned to this college the following year for postgraduate work and was appointed a professor of hygiene by 1853. She led the effort then to found the Women's Hospital of Philly in order to provide sorely needed clinical training to the college students. Because what's happening now is these women are getting these degrees and they're going to post-grad work, but they can't actually practice on any patients because there are no hospitals that will allow them to do clinical experience Uh, and nobody is willing to do it. Okay. So Anne's like, I am going to build a building in Philadelphia where we can do this because there wasn't room in the original college. Mm Mm-hmm. She's like, okay, going to build the building. It's going to require a ton of money. So Anne starts going door to door to solicit funds to build this women's clinical (laughs) building. But then the American Civil War happens and her college closes because of lack of funds. However, Anne is working this whole time. She's still walking around trying to raise money. She even raises enough money to send her friend, um, colleague Emmeline Horton Cleveland, to Paris to study uh, OB so Uh. that she can be an OB. And, like, she becomes a resident in the hospital when she comes back. (gasps) So Anne is all about, like, making sure all women can, like, get the knowledge they need. Uh. I love that. It's really cool because a lot of people like, and I think Elizabeth Blackwell is definitely a culprit of this was kind of like, I made it through. I don't need to turn around and help people up. Uh, I, that's the vibe I got when we did the research on her, um, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily a bad thing. Like it is in right. some cases, every person for themselves. Like, yeah, you made it like good yep. for you. But Anne was very different about the way she saw the world. Yeah. Um. So, Even after all this, there's not enough money to build this clinic. So she borrows her family's horse and buggy from the Quakers (laughs) and begins riding from farm to farm, pleading her case. And her story and her passion is really sitting with people. And the money starts trickling in Ah. to build this clinical institution. But at this time, I mean, Anne gets really sick from exhaustion and has fever and stress and she gets admitted to a Philadelphia hospital into an insane institution <gasps> no. for three months. <gasps> She's determined clinic- clinically insane because of her exhaustion. I hate that. Yeah. So much. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Now, <laughs> She is, like, recuperating for these three months, and she definitely needed the rest. But (laughs) she fortunately has a lot of Quaker friends who are like, we need to advocate for the humane treatment of the mentally ill because (laughs) this is not okay. Anne's not crazy. She just, like, needs help. Yep. 
she's sick because she's been the most (laughs) (laughs) absolutely the most she's been the most she's boots on the ground like (laughs) yeah needs some help she's hooves on the buggy the buggy i know okay all right (laughs) so when if i don't see a tote bag with that saying on it immediately (laughs) i will riot (laughs) somebody needs to i say a lot of funny things (laughs) okay when the female college resumed operation in 1862 it reopened her clinical place reopened and it had rooms for rent for women in this hospital in Philly, it was built to treat the diseases of women and children and to have an OB. And women were supposed to be able to study medicine there as well, not just come in as patients. Mm-hmm. And they also trained nurses, which this was the first nurse training program in the <gasps> United States. What? Before that, it was just like, we need women to like hand us stuff and like help out with the little things. But they were like, no, we can train these women about medicine as well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> A lot of good that did Jane Toppin last Exactly. <laughs> when they first accepted patients uh, to the lying in department area. That what that's it's the called? name of the cocktail. No, that was what the maternity ward was called. Lying, lying in. in department. Oh, kind of like in the family way. Yeah, in the family She's lying way. In She's department. lying in department. So they opened that up <laughs> in December. By April, there are 12 patients in the beds Mm. that want female doctors to, like, practice on them and to help them out. And it grew steadily. By 1875, they were housing 37 bedrooms, and they were treating 2,000 patients at their home. And they saw 3,000 patients in dispensary, which I think means, like, outpatient stuff. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So because women and children were admitted without regard to wealth, religious beliefs, nationality, Mm. or race, they had everybody who couldn't get treatment coming to these Quaker women saying, we will help you. Yeah. Thank you. You know what? (laughs) I feel like, I don't know if this is true. Again, we're not historians, but like, I kind of feel like there was this kind of mentality of like, women and children aren't worth medical care because they're not the breadwinner so like who the fuck cares it's like yes get them off the boat first but you know what i'm saying it's like this weird thing of like well we want to be noble and rescue them first but we will not invest in preventative care yeah and then i mean like children and women die it's what they do like (laughs) and then imagine like being a woman or a child of color Mm -hmm. is even harder because there are places that are not gonna treat you Oh, God. It's just, yeah. The idea of it is so infuriating. Yeah. Like, so, so Anne is like into universal health care. Yeah. <laughs> good, ah, good for her. Me too. Thanks, Anne. <laughs> we agree. Um, but in 1864, uh, a rift emerges in the faculty when the dean, Edwin Fussell, tried. <laughs> I hate that last name. It's, oh, how, it's so Spell bad. it. Spell it. F-U-S-S-E-L-L. Wow, Fussel. that's exactly what I thought it was going to be. And <laughs> Fussel, I hate... like Russell with an S. <laughs> with an F. <laughs> okay. Edwin Fussell. Tried... Don't you have a Fussell side of your family? <laughs> <laughs> I have a Russell side of my family? 
But from now on, Fussell's the name. <laughs> it's the name of the game. So Edwin Fussell tried to prevent a female student who had all the qualifications from graduating with a medical degree from this institution. Mm-hmm. And she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Not cool. So other faculty, including Anne, strongly support this woman and disagree with his decision. Mm-hmm. Following this incident, Fussell resigns <laughs> and Anne becomes the dean of the college. What? She is the first female dean in the United States states of an american medical school and she was dean from 1866 to 1872 <gasps> good for her i know she's kicked those men out of their jobs that they don't deserve she took our jobs <laughs> <laughs> the position this position allowed her to campaign for the rights of women to become physicians even more under her leadership the college trained the first african-american and first native american female doctors uh, in the country so cool she also trained the first medical missionaries to asia Anne was what could be called an institution builder, Mm. guiding the college through its post-war rebuilding and growth. She was also considered an activist Quaker, her weapon being moral, active examples for the community. Like, let me show you what I can do. So many famous physicians, male and female, were on um, to teach at her college right everybody wanted to be there and at this time in america because medicine is being streamlined a lot of small medical schools are going out of business but hers is not one of them Mm. so now that they're saying okay these are the exact guidelines you have to follow to be considered a medical institution and she passes as a woman run institution in the u.s In addition to becoming dean of the hospital that she founded, she opened a school of nursing, like we said, um, and she had her own private practice. You know, what? Just on the side, just in case. Her program led other women to activism. They learned at the hospital and then they took what they learned back to their neighborhoods and they taught women about health and hygiene. And uh, Sarah Maps Douglas is actually an example of one of the African-American women who went into low income communities and was able to talk to people because she looked like them. It wasn't an outsider coming in to tell you what to do with your body. It was an I understand you. I am part of your community. And Mm -hmm. I'm also trained in this. Let me tell you, community spreading of medical information, as long as you didn't get it like from some crackpot on Twitter, right? Is very important. Like, I obviously, we obviously went to Christian school. So, like, you know, we didn't get like any, I I didn't get any sex education or anything. And when I was like in my (laughs) like late 20s, someone was like, well, you know, like you should like pee after sex or whatever. And I was like, no one told me (laughs) that. Like, that seems like very important information. Like, yeah, how many urinary tract infections yes. do you want in your life? And, like, they're like, you didn't know that? And I was like, no, I did not. Right. Like, like, I just feel like when it's coming from from people who have also, like, your best interest in mind. Right. It's so good. And that you aren't, know. like, preaching an agenda. I feel like a lot yes. of people are teaching when they're talking to people about health and hygiene and sex they're pushing a political or religious agenda instead of telling you what is best for you as a human Uh uh-huh and that's like i think that Anne had that in her head that like i know i can't reach everybody but i can train enough people that everybody will be reached yeah 
And that's mm. so important. Yes. Um, unfortunately, though, still in the late 1860s, the like Philadelphia County Medical Society is still objecting to women being like actual doctors everywhere. And Anne said, you know, we have to protest. We have to go out of this. We can't after this. We can't just sit still and be like, oh, we're women. That's it. So she pushed all she could to get, quote, lady doctors <laughs> accepted in the community. Mm. So she finally negotiated with Philly Blockley Hospital to allow women to attend a general clinic there. And she won. But when she arrived with her students, they were met by angry demonstrators who shouted insults and threw paper and tinfoil and tobacco at the women. The women stayed composed and attended the clinic, but on the way out, then they were pelted with rocks. Oh my gosh. Because they wanted to get information at a medical clinic. In 1869, she made another arrangement with another Pennsylvania hospital and a group of about 30 women medical students went there. They were verbally and physically harassed by the men. A female faculty member um, recalled that the male students rushed in and stood up on their seats and hooted and called them names and threw spitballs like they were trying to dislodge the women. But this incident, the second incident landed all over the local and national press and the propriety and like very cool calculated appearance of the women versus the very like outwardly aggressive acts of the men made people go, who do we really want as doctors? (laughs) Yeah. And then people got on their side (sighs) and really started to fight for these women to become doctors. It swang the public opinion and they had to open co-ed clinics. I love that. That they were composed and therefore they won. Because, yeah, who do you want as your doctor? Right. Someone who is, like, literally willing to take a rock to the face right. to be able to, for the to right treat you? to treat you? Right. Or the person l- literally hooting and hollering. Right. <laughs> and that's not to say we don't need hooters and hollerers. Yes, that's we true. We need some. But not a, like but not, not like this. <laughs> basic rights. Yeah. Like, not this. No, no, no. Wrong type of hooting and hollering. <laughs> Um, so check your hootering, check your hollering, <laughs> hootering. hootering. I love that hootering. <laughs> Is that like motorboating someone yeah. from Hooters? <laughs> hootering. I love that. Hooter servers, let us know. Let us know. I hope you're listening. Yeah, we I, want you here. I really do. My cousin Brittany worked at Hooters. Our friend um, Megan did. Yeah, I love it. I think it's a great Megan, way to make money. Megan was like, I made a ton of money there. It's great. It's awesome. Guys are idiots. God, I wish I had Hooters. If I did, yeah, I'd sign God. up immediately. <laughs> I got mine too late. <laughs> the, bill, <laughs> the bill was paid by them. I paid for my Hooters. Yeah. My Hooters didn't pay, pay for, for me. <laughs> That's the tote bag. <laughs> okay. So as I said, Anne was the first women's dean of a medical school. Um, You know, in a time where the medical profession is all male and it's unacceptable for women and was campaigning for all female students to be admitted to clinics in Pennsylvania hospitals. She is facing like hostility from male medical students and faculty members. She's negotiating. And like I said, she has her own private practice on the side. And never married, but led a rich, active social and professional life, including establishing a household. 
that uh, it said where dear friends can live with me in harmonious relations. So I don't know what Anne is doing in her household and with whom, but she definitely wow. had some friendly ladies living there with her throughout her life. Um, okay. I mean, it yeah. sounds like she had like a commune. Yeah. She had some <laughs> like girls. Like a harem. <laughs> she had some girls in and out of there. Anne knew what was going on. Um, she was just commuting with her peers. Late in life, she did get very ill, but she did remain a constant consultant and professor. Her private practice was restricted, though, because she couldn't ride out to people's houses anymore. Mm -hmm. But her spirits remained really strong, and she was a constant inspiration to her students. Years after teaching them, she would reach out to them and urge them to continue practicing medicine Mm. because they needed to be seen in the public. She said, the more women we see representing as doctors, the better. She continued to write and work for social reform until she suffered from an attack of acute articular rheumatitis, Mm. rheumatism. I don't know. In 1871. And that left her in a really weakened state. And she suffered a relapse the following year and died in April of 1872, which means she was still the dean of the college when she died. Oh, my gosh. When Anne died, like I said, she was buried near friend Lucretia Mott in North Philly. Emily Hill, go over, tell us how it is. Um, And the building and medical center that she opened in the 1800s is still operating as a rehabilitation center run by Quakers for elderly and homeless women. And that is the story of Anne Preston. That's what she did. That's all she she wrote. That's it. Uh, I love that. It fits in so well with my story. It's unreal. She's just a great <sighs> example of somebody who was like not willing to give up and wanted yeah. every woman to come along with her. Yeah. I love women like that, that like pull people up with them. Right. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't a like, competition. Yeah. She like sent her friend to Paris to get the education she couldn't get. That's so cool. It is cool. Ah, oh, I love it. All Anne. right. Well, we need to get on to Annie. Okay. With another cocktail. at home but then yours had half and half yeah so i was like well i'm not just gonna do that now now that i know right <laughs> so we didn't do that but i feel like our cocktails are finally departing yeah Maybe we'll come back together next couple week weeks, we'll we were see. like going a little crazy yeah um so do you want to know what it is yeah i do it's beautiful okay so this podcast is called heard that but h E R D. This podcast is called Heard That or This Drink? This Drink. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) This drink is called Heard That. Um, And it is vodka, vanilla extract, or you can do vanilla vodka, whatever floats your boat, pineapple juice, elderflower liqueur. You shake it all up, you top it with tonic, and then you garnish it with a lime wedge, but like sprinkle the lime wedge a little bit on top before you drink it. Ooh, nice. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> it's very light. Mm, very super light. light. I like that. Yeah, I like that too. Mm, uh, yeah. I, I think the elderflower liqueur kind of like lifts everything. Um, and the tonic obviously, but then you kind of have like that mm, nice little grounding yeah. down of the vanilla. I love adding vanilla to things that, don't need it. Don't yeah. <laughs> do not need it. Yeah. yeah, no. Vanilla's great. Elderflower's great. And we have it in spades around here. So mm, so much. 
All right. So what do you know about Annie Dodge Juaneca? So all I did before you were coming over today, which is what I do every week, is I look at the list and I go, who's Katie doing again? So I looked it up and I um, rightly assumed, obviously, from your um, physical that she is a Native American woman Mm -hmm. and that she is of the Navajo Navajo tribe. Mm -hmm. But I don't know anything about her life or what she's done. I'm assuming she lived... um, a little bit closer to the present because you were talking a lot about what she was doing in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, or like more recent than my woman. But I don't know about like what time period or exactly what she was fighting for because the Native Americans have a lot to uh, fight for and be yes. angry about. So <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, so I was really surprised this week because I put her on the list. I looked her up this week, and her Wikipedia page is, like, so tiny. Okay. So small. Like, two paragraphs. Okay. And I was like, okay, so I guess there's just not a lot on this woman. And then I look, as I usually do, I make the rounds. There's, like, no YouTube videos about her. No I was podcast, like, okay. maybe. There, so there was, was a podcast. Ah. Which is normally, like, the least uh, useful thing, uh-huh. frankly. Um, Stem Fatale did a two-part episode on her. Each part was an hour long, over an hour. So That's I was like, great. What? <laughs> I think what had happened was like they got their hands on an actual like biography of this woman and they were going through the biography. And it was such a wealth of information because I learned, I just want to shout them out because I would have just kind of like, you know, done the things that were available to me and they actually did the work and read the whole fucking book on her. And this woman is incredible and i just want so that's all just to say i you know femme fatale st- i'm sorry stem femme fatale, fatale which is also a perfect name for a podcast they did such a good job and i literally this story would be two pages if it wasn't for them and mm-hmm. it's almost nine thank you thank you so yeah let's get into it <laughs> Annie Dodge was born on April 11th, 1910, to Navajo leader Henry Chi Dodge and his third partner, Kihaba. She was born in Deer Spring, Arizona, in a hogan. So this is a traditional Navajo dwelling. It is a structure made from wooden poles, tree bark, and mud, and it is a very sacred space. Many Navajo families still have one for performing, you know, rituals in. So her father was a very important man. He was the official Navajo interpreter to the U.S. military for a period of time, and he eventually became the head chief of the Navajo Nation in 1883. So this is late 1800s, so a lot is going on with... Yeah, this is like a bad time. Native American U.S. politics. And this is her father or her grandfather? This is her father. Her father is the chief. Henry Chi Dodge. He was also the first chairman of the Navajo Business Council in 1922, and he managed to secure over $1 million in royalties for the Navajo Nation related to mineral rights on their land. Wow. So her dad is a very important man. I just want to make that clear. Now, we said that she was born to Kihaba, Henry's third partner, but... This isn't exactly a third wife situation. Apparently, Kihaba was only his partner for a little bit because her two older sisters, who were already Henry's partners, were away somewhere. So when they came back, Kihaba went away, and 
Annie, who was the only child they had together, was left. So she was basically raised by her aunt Nanaba and didn't know until she was older that Kihaba was her birth mother. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And the other problem is that like her she had she grew up with her half um sister and five half brothers. And they always treated her a little different, especially her half-sister, Mary. Like, she was always, like, a little mean to her and being like, well, you're not even one of us. And Annie, like, grew up not even knowing what that meant. She didn't know why. Yeah. She was okay. like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I'm, like, your sister. Yeah. I'm your sister. I'm here. Like, like I'm on the ranch. <laughs> like, what are you talking yeah. about? Um, But regardless of all this, uh, Annie when she was five years old, started assisting her father with chores on the the range. So she is herding various farm animals, including horses, donkeys, and goats. But she was most into helping um, the sheep. She loved to herd the sheep. (laughs) She ended up having a little flock of her own that she was responsible for. And at five years old, she would run out in the morning do her errands with her sheep, get them to where they needed to be, get them fed, get them taken care of. She'd come back to the house for some coffee and breakfast and then go back out to the range to like finish her day. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, she also got very skilled at butchering and cooking the sheep that she was taking care of. I mean, she's a very responsible and busy young woman. Right. <laughs> So she's working hard on the range, and then in 1918, when she's eight years old, she gets sent to school. She went to the Bureau of Indian Affairs Boarding School in Fort Defiance, Arizona. But unfortunately for everyone, the 1918 Spanish influenza was rearing its ugly head in the U.S., and it swept through Annie's Right. Thankfully, she got a mild case of it and recovered. Um, but this meant that eight-year-old Annie, because she had already gotten it, now she's immune, she's turned into a nurse <laughs> at eight years old <laughs> to help everyone else who's getting sick around her, students, teachers, whatever. Again, very responsible young girl. <laughs> oh, poor thing. But the other problem is, like, obviously, this is a really deadly flu, and Annie just had to watch as her classmates died very brutally from this flu. And then she had to watch as the school ran out of coffins and they just started to wrap kids up in sheets and just pile them up in the dormitories. She's eight years old. And it's Arizona. It's hot. So hot. She's like, I'd rather be butchering sheep (laughs) on my range than be at this fucking school. Crazy. So, I mean, she's eight years old and she's already living this unimaginably adult life. So across the Navajo reservation, about 2,500 people ended up dying during this pandemic. And then a few years later, when she was in fourth grade, they had another illness sweep through, something called trachoma. This is an eyelid infection that can cause blindness. So they ended up having to turn her school into a hospital But this time, instead of being hired as a nurse, (laughs) she was sent to the nearby St. Michael's Catholic Mission. So she goes there for a little bit. I don't know whether this was one of, like, the classic, like, Indian boarding schools that we hear of, because I know a lot of those, like, were, like, church and Catholic run. 
But either way, in sixth grade, Annie was sent to another new school. This was the Albuquerque Indian School in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So because Annie's life is a literal waking nightmare, she has another (laughs) crazy thing happen to her on the way to her new school. (laughs) So this school is the furthest away that she's ever been from home. So like a lot of the other kids in her area who are going um, to this school, they all have to take the train out there. So she's on this train. The train stops to pick up more kids and more people on its way to Albuquerque. And someone notices that the train behind them does not seem to be stopping or slowing down at all. No. So the adults on the train realize what's happening. Are you going to make me do math here? They No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) This is not the PSATs. Don't worry about that. But they they realize that this train is going to hit them. So these adults start screaming at these kids. They're like, get to the front of the train. Everybody move up. Brace yourselves. But a lot of these kids were going to school for the first time. They're young Navajo kids. They can't speak English. Oh, no. So all of a sudden, they just have like a bunch of adults screaming in their faces, and they don't know why. And then a train runs into them because they have no idea what's happening or about to happen. So train runs into the back of her train, totally pushes them off the rails. It's a huge train accident. Thankfully, no one that I know of died in this accident, but many of the children were thrown so hard that they were injured pretty badly. There was a lot of broken bones, and then they were stranded for 12 hours in the desert, no desert. That's terrible. Before they were picked up and finally taken. By another train. To another train. To the Albuquerque school. <laughs> I, that is a crazy, crazy first couple years of your life. <laughs> No. I'm sorry. There's the flu. I'm sorry. There's the eyelid infections. I'm sorry. Your mom disappeared. I'm sorry. Your train got in an accident. That is like the literal definition of like, this sounds like what's that movie where death is following them around. Oh, final destination. Yeah. This is final destination. Somebody's after Annie. Somebody's after Annie. So while at the Albuquerque school, Annie continues to exhibit her stellar work ethic. She studies really hard. She is really smart. And she ends up like even skipping a couple grades. And while she's there, she meets an older boy named George Waneka. George is an athlete who's super cool. And apparently Annie's natural shyness just melts away when she's around him. And the two fall in love. So she completes her studies. Um, I think like she's the age of like maybe like a 10th or 11th grader when she graduates. Um, Then she goes home. She's back to sheep herding and her and George keep in touch. And then she kind of breaks it to her father. She goes, I found a boy to marry. And this is kind of a big deal because originally it was like the parents who kind of chose the partner. Um, But I think her dad always really respected Annie. So he was like, okay, like if you think George is the one, like let's do this. So when she was 19, her and George were married in a big grand ceremony. I mean, she was the chief's daughter, so yeah. this was a pretty big deal. <laughs> then she and her husband moved to Tanner Springs. This is a property that her father owned, and they were basically given this whole new range to take care of sheep there. So many sheep in this story. <laughs> and <laughs> Listen, I love a good sheep. And this is where they would really, like, start their family. So... 
she's at Tanner Springs and her father would come around to go to um, like Navajo, like tribal council, like local meetings, because he was obviously a part of that. So he was like, why don't you come? Why don't you prepare food for the meeting? And then you can sit in and, you know, like listen to what's going on. So she's like, that sounds great. She makes the food. Then she sits down. She's learning. She's hurting. Um, (laughs) And in the early years of her marriage, she is also having a ton of kids. She and George at this point have seven children together. That was quick. Very quick. (laughs) I don't know the timeline exactly. It was a little sparse on the details there. But we do know that because... They were in a very rural area of Arizona. They didn't always have access to the health care that she needed in a timely manner. This meant that some of her children were born with birth-related disabilities mm. because she just, like, literally couldn't get medical help quickly enough. So she's busy at home. She <laughs> obviously has a lot going on. She's pregnant all the time. But she still makes time to go to these tribal council meetings. And as she grows older, she starts to take more of an active role. She's kind of done being an observer who makes the snacks. So she starts to speak up in meetings a little bit more. She starts to voice her opinion. She starts to ask for more responsibility. And her first big gig is that she starts interpreting for her local chapter, just like her father did with the military, between the Navajo leaders and the people from the U.S. government. Because of her success at this, she gets elected to be the leader of the grazing council. So this is right in her wheelhouse. She's she goes, good at I sheep. I love sheep. <laughs> I'm very good at I this. I can lead the grazing yes. council. <laughs> With this new position, though, comes new responsibilities, and she has to travel across Arizona to various ranges to make sure that everything's on the up and up. Then, on November 26, 1946, her father is hospitalized with pneumonia. On his deathbed, he spoke to his children, and he said, Don't let the straight robe fall to the ground. Keep it held high. And he was basically saying, Don't let things fall apart. Work together to help the people. Keep us lifted up. Keep the work going. And with that, he died. And obviously, he had been such an important figure in the Navajo community and to this family that his death is a huge deal. And especially with Annie, his words really struck a chord. But, of course, she can't really think about it right now because she has two more children. So she's up to nine. And (laughs) her last birth was probably the most traumatic. I think this is how the story goes. So she is trying desperately to reach the hospital in this car. She gives birth to the child in the car on the way to the hospital. But she retains the placenta. Oh, no. She's going to get an infection. Which is not good. No. It's a lot of pain. This could kill her. It's bad. She's in like the back of a truck driving through the dusty Arizona desert just to try and get medical help. Thankfully, she did get to the hospital and they helped her out. But I think after this, she was like, I'm done with the birth thing. Also, I've done this nine times and nine times it has been difficult and frustrating. Like, 
Something needs to happen. She's so fertile. Yeah. Like <laughs> the she, most fertile. She needs to like not get pregnant anymore. Un- Crazy. Real. But she can't deal with that now because she has a literal baseball team of a family running through her, you know, fields. And she has the grazing committee <laughs> that she's a part outfield. of. Annie's in the outfield. She's herding the fuck out of some sheep. <laughs> and then also, like, making sure everybody else's sheep herding is okay. And keeping the straight road from falling. Just keeping everything <laughs> together. And she keeps thinking back to what her father said. She goes, like, but am I actually doing enough to keep the robe up? Am I keeping things together? Am I doing all that I can? She knew her half siblings were not interested in politics. So she was like, I think I need to carry on my father's legacy. I need to run for a leadership position in the tribal council. So in 1951, she ran against two other men and she won. Wow. That last name does a lot. Uh-huh. She <laughs> This made her the second woman ever on the tribal council. Wow. And she was not going to just sit there and be the token quiet girl. Annie was outspoken. She would stand up not only to government officials when she thought they were trying to take advantage of them, but also to other members of the council when they felt when she felt like they were trying to use Navajo funds inappropriately. (laughs) (laughs) So Arizona is a pretty big state. So Annie would drive like 150 miles sometimes at a time to get to these tribal council meetings, sometimes like day after day after day. And you might be wondering what is going on at home while Annie is doing all of this because who she's got nine kids. She's got nine kids, some of them with disabilities. So like too many kids, what's going on? So apparently George did start up a relationship with uh, the neighbor lady and he had one or two kids with uh, her. So along with her nine, that makes 11 children. Well, I mean, also like Annie was like, I'm done having sex. But also like the father had a lot of wives. Was that like more popular? I couldn't figure that out. Okay. I tried to Google if like polygamy was common in Navajo tribes or just 1800s. But like I couldn't really find any hard evidence, but it seemed like Annie was kind of cool with it because it was open. And honestly, like she was never home. So it was, and also like, I'm, I don't know if to her, it was like, yeah, this is just like what our families do. We help raise each other's children. So like, yes, like come in, like, you know, this is great. Join us. Like, I'm not here, so, like, why not have another mothering figure? I don't know if she loved it or hated it. (laughs) But either way, George, this neighbor lady, and uh, one of Annie's, uh, I guess, another one of her half-sisters, because I already said she had one, but I don't think Mary's helping out here, because Mary (laughs) was kind of mean to Annie. Yeah. Uh, They're taking care of the kids and the range, so Annie can do all of this important work. Soon, Annie gets to go to her first trip to Washington, D.C. with the council. This is very exciting, but while she's there, she gets word that tuberculosis is running rampant in Arizona. She's like a magnet for popular illnesses. (laughs) And she learns that it is affecting the Navajo population at a much greater number than the white population. Oh, interesting. So the tribal council is hearing all this. And one of the members stands up and he's like, where's the lady? He goes, we should put her in charge of this. Women are much better at taking care of people than men. 
I mean, so, accurate, but also, hey, don't volunteer me for yeah. shit. <laughs> so Annie is appointed the head of the council's health and welfare committee. Which, honestly, if you think about all the shit that she's been going through, it's like, what makes her qualified is that she's already been through a few pandemics. I mean, not because she's a woman. She was a nurse at 10. Yeah. <laughs> like, to, like, for the biggest has, flu oh, in American this history. rodeo again? <laughs> oh, excuse me, it's H1N1? I'm here for it. And she's just seen time and time again how the Navajo health system was failing people. So she goes... Okay, first thing we need to do, we need to get more Navajo people to hospitals, and we need to get more doctors to the Navajo people. Let's just, you know, move them both ways, because <laughs> that's what needs to be happening. That's okay. when we're going to have the mass, like, the best number of people connecting to each other. So, she starts doing this, but of course, it's still spreading. People are just not able to get the treatment quickly enough on the reservation, or... They are leaving the treatment too early, bringing it home, and spreading it further, and people are dying. So it's like the information is not quite, like, disseminated enough. Because there's a huge mistrust of white hospitals. So people in the Navajo community would delay going to the hospital until they were, like, near death or, like... You know, they would go if they were a little bit before death, they'd get a little bit better and they'd be like, okay, well, I don't need this anymore. And they'd come home and infect their families. But then whoever was staying at the hospital, because they were already near death, they would die, you know, because they were waiting so long. So people would be like, well, I'm not going to go to the hospital. Like the past 10 people have gone there have died. They're obviously killing people there. Like, it's like being like, well, they went into hospice and they never came back out. It's yeah. like, well, yeah, because that's what, that's what happens. Is. That's yeah. the end of the life thing. If you wait like, too long, there's no, there's no way to fix it. Yeah. You've like passed the point of no return. Yeah. So there's a lot of mistrust going on. There's a lot of misinformation. There was also a language barrier. Some people would go to the hospital and still have a hard time because they can't communicate with their doctors. So the doctor's having a hard time being like, what are your symptoms? How are you feeling? And they, like, cannot tell them. They don't have the chart system yet, which are like, on one to ten, how do you feel? Point to what hurts. I don't even want to talk. I hate the chart system. (laughs) I I spent so many years of my life looking at those fucking (laughs) round, smiley, frowny faces. And I was like, I don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. I hear you. Like, (laughs) I don't know if this is a five for me, but a seven for someone else. I think you're two in your head, Katie. (laughs) Oh, that is beyond clear. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Woo. Okay. So this is all going on. And (laughs) Andy's like, okay, I'm going to deal with the tuberculosis problem. And George, who had been like pretty supportive of Annie, was like, I'm sorry. He goes, you just can't come home. You're literally dealing with tuberculosis patients. And I can't have you bringing this home to the ranch. And he's like, he's right. Yeah. He is, he right. is correct. Yeah. And so like, well, she's social distancing work. Yeah. <laughs> so she's dealing with this pandemic and then she literally can't even go home. Oh. She's like, I could kill my whole family. <laughs> Honestly, though, George does something shitty later. And I don't know if this affair with a neighbor lady was like totally condoned, but like, this is a good call on his part. Be like, I'm sorry. Like, 
we have to do what's best for like the family. Right. So, and he's like, okay, well, I'm obviously, I'm, I'm in this deep. I can't go home. So I might as well just go full on into the tuberculosis. <laughs> so full she goes, speed ahead. she goes, you know what the problem is? She goes, I don't really know what this disease is. She goes, I have a high school education. Right. <laughs> I don't understand it on a logistical level. She goes, so step one, I need to know what's going on. So she goes to the hospitals. She what a novel idea for a politician. I know. <laughs> She's like, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to talk to the doctors. I'm going to learn about this illness and the treatment. And she was like, you know what? I don't even want you to tell me about it. She goes, take me to a microscope. I want to see it. Mm. So that's what she does. For three months, she learns everything that she possibly can about tuberculosis before she starts spreading the information and really implementing her plan. She wants to have an answer to every question that could possibly come up so she can build trust between herself and the doctors and the Navajo people. So she starts talking to people before they get sick. She goes, these are the warning signs. And then she talks to people while they are sick, explaining the treatment to them and assuring them that if they go to the hospital early enough, they will be okay. And then she's also translating for the doctors so that they can understand what the patients are experiencing. She would also take some of the TB patients into the lab with her. And she'd be like, look at the microscope. She goes, that's what you have. That is a germ. It is in your body. You need antibiotics. <laughs> It'll kill it. And it's all in an effort to demystify the illness. Because what the Stem Fatale podcast was kind of talking about was there was also this kind of traditional belief that if you were sick, there was something wrong with your spirit, not exactly with your body. Right. And she was like, look at the microscope. This is something that is wrong with your body. And you need to treat your body. <laughs> like, you know, and so she's literally doing all this. And then there's this other problem where people are leaving. So she goes, okay, maybe I can get people to stay if I can keep up communication with their loved ones. So she starts bringing a tape recorder into the hospital. She's recording messages for patients' families. She's driving across Arizona, taking it back to their families. They're recording messages back so they can hear each other's voices, yeah. which is so important because she goes, I don't think they're going to trust just like a letter. Yeah. Like I need them to hear the desperation in their voice of like, we need you to get better. And she goes, and I need the families at home to hear the, their tenor and their voice of like, I'm okay here. I'm not being treated badly. Right. You know, because yeah. that's what initiates the trust is like, are you lying to me? Are you saying that like, they're okay in the hospital and maybe they're not, I don't know. Mm. And she knew that like, they could interact with the tape recorder better than like any kind of letter or doctor's note could. Yeah. And I think, I feel like I couldn't imagine like in the case of like a lot of native American people, you have your politics and your religion and your culture and your family all tied up in one thing. It's not like separate avenues of your yeah. life. It's like all your life. So I can't it's imagine. All tied up. Yeah, yeah. Like trying to separate your your beliefs from like the 
new discoveries of certain medicines and like that's crazy scary yeah and this is the next big hurdle that she has to jump over is she has to go to the medicine men Mm. she has to go to these tribal caregivers that she respects everyone respects and she has to tell them i need you to change everything that you know i mean these are guys that learned this medicine in the 1800s and are now and it's a multi-generational multi-generational like like, word of mouth hand down yes and she has to go with them and she's like i respect you i appreciate what you do but these people need antibiotics it's again trying to explain to them like this isn't this isn't a spirit problem. She goes, maybe some spirit stuff will help too. But she goes, but they need antibiotics, like something. So they need medicine. And I think that Annie was such a good person to do this because she knew that it was sensitive. You know, if this isn't some like white doctor coming in and being like, stop all this. She goes, no, no, no. You can keep doing it, but then also refer them to the hospital. Right. <laughs> like tell them what that they have they TB. Need. Like. Like you can do both. You can hear heal your soul yeah. and your body at the same time. And then she offered the same kind of training to them. She goes, I respect what you do, but maybe you should respect what I'm doing. She goes, come and respect what they're doing. She goes, come to the hospital with me. She takes the medicine men from the Navajo tribe and she goes, come to the hospital. And she has the doctors give them a lecture on what TB is. She has them look under the microscope. She is... Literally taking each problem and like working it herself, person to person, which is so difficult. And creative. (laughs) Yeah, it's very creative. But it's like, there's only so far that, there's only so many people you can reach Mm one-on-one. So she goes, all right, you know what the Navajo people fucking love? Movies. She goes, (laughs) I'm going to start making educational health film PSAs. And I am going to distribute these. I would watch all of them. They were done in the Navajo language. Oh, great. Featured Navajo actors so that people felt like they could trust the message. And this, all this effort really started to pay off. People recovered rather than died. The disease slowed down. And the doctors would credit this massive shift to Annie. They said that her campaign of education was just as effective in treating tuberculosis as the medicine itself. So obviously she's been busy. (laughs) And then it's 1954 and her term on the council is up and she needs to run again. This seems like a slam dunk. They're like, she basically like (laughs) saved the world. Like we love her. So she starts her campaign, and lo and behold, she has an opponent that she was not expecting. Her husband, George. I knew it was going (laughs) to happen. That's terrible. She was like, what are you doing? Drop out. This is weird. Like, you don't have a chance. Was he, like, jealous of her? Did he want to, like, be out while she was home with the kids? I have no explanation for this. He lost in a landslide. Yeah. They stayed together. And I don't understand why he did this. I don't know. I literally can't explain it. So whatever. (laughs) This is a weird little moment in her life. (laughs) Then in 1955, 
The U.S. This is okay. So I'm just going to say right now too. This is when we start to get really into the politics between like the government and the tribal, like the Navajo tribal council. So sure. If I say the wrong committee or governing body, I apologize. I don't. <laughs> this is when I was really like, I was getting a lot of information. This is when the we're not historians tagline yes, comes into play. really comes into play. So. In 1955, the U.S. Public Health Service takes over for the Indian Council Health Department, which is good because it came with a lot more funding. And then they started a whole project basically based on what Annie had already been doing with TB. How can we bridge the cultural and linguistic divide that keeps people in this country from accessing health care? Annie is obviously helping to lead this project. And soon they realize they need to really focus a lot more on prevention. If we think back to like a lot of the illnesses that Annie was experiencing in her youth and the tuberculosis, they're like, these are preventable diseases and illnesses. And obviously the best way to save lives and to save money is to prevent the illness from happening in the first place. So she continues her PSA work. She's making the little movies. She creates a medical dictionary that translates from English to Navajo so that translators can better explain things to patients. So we all know that sometimes things get lost in translation. So this book would help people, you know, understand what was about to happen to them. Like, for example, there was a time when someone was in need of life-saving thyroid surgery. They had thyroid cancer. They needed to get it removed. And the doctor was like, tell them I need to make an incision on their throat, take something out. It's really simple. It's not that big of a deal. The translator said, the doctor's going to slit your throat open. And the person ran out of the hospital screaming (laughs) because they're like, no. Of course I don't want that to happen. Please don't do that to me. Annie wanted to change that. So she worked for years finding the words to translate medical procedures and medical jargon into Navajo because she was like, we can't just relate on, "Uh, that's close enough. (laughs) She goes, no, no, no. We need to like make people not scared of these procedures. (laughs) Right. And like when communities were like starting new medical procedures they made up words for it Mm -hmm. which means there isn't a direct translation because whatever community started the practice made up the word exactly so there isn't a way to translate it if the word doesn't exist in another language yeah the limit does not exist (laughs) so she clearly exists (laughs) so this is like one of her like big projects that is so important because Having someone say, we're going to do a simple procedure to take your thyroid out versus I'm going to slit your throat open. Like those are two very different yeah, things. Exactly. <laughs> so she does that. She also develops a radio show where she would talk openly about medical issues she and is how to stay multi, healthy. Multimedia uh, woman. Yes, she is. And then she goes, you know what? These PSAs are not going further enough. So she demands that every movie theater in the reservation play her PSAs before movies. I'm a, she would have flourished on social goes, media. I'm everywhere, bitch. Listen to me. <laughs> I'm going to save your fucking life. <laughs> My gosh. Somebody hook her up with Dr. Fauci. Let me tell you. <laughs> then in 1959, 
her brother dies from alcohol-related issues. And she goes, all right, this is obviously a problem. So she starts dedicating time and research to seeing how alcohol affects people on the reservation and how they can help people dealing with alcoholism. She ends up creating a whole committee. She loves a committee around this <laughs> issue, and she becomes the chair of it. She finds out in her research that 80% of arrests on the reservation are alcohol-related, and 60% of Navajos were drinking alcohol before breakfast. Oh, I'm sorry, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And she's like, this is a problem. Problematic. Yeah, I've this heard addiction very problem. is hard on reservation. Very hard. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was they were saying in the podcast that it's because alcohol used to be this very expensive, like, luxury good. So, like, I know there's – and this is – I'm not saying this is the only problem with this. Right. <laughs> like, this is the only cause of it. Mm. But one of the causes of it was, like, it was kind of seen as like a very like high status thing to have alcohol. But then I also know there was something when like the Americans were like giving the native, like, you know, the military were like giving it to them to be like, get drunk, so you're off your guard. So I don't know. There are a lot of different factors going on, but that is to be said, alcohol is a big problem. Annie knows it's a big problem now and she's trying to help. So, She starts doing this. Then in 1959, she is given the Fire Award from the Tribal Council, acknowledging all the good she's doing for the Navajo Nation. She is the first Native American to win Arizona's Woman of the Year Award. And then she receives a message from President John F. Kennedy that she is going to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. (gasps) Wow. (laughs) I mean, from JFK, no less. From (laughs) JFK himself. She was the first Native American to receive this honor, and the ceremony was scheduled for December 6th. No! 1963. No, 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 no. That's like days. The worst. That's like weeks after Ray, he was killed November 22nd, I think. November 22nd, oh. he was assassinated. Oh, my goodness. The ceremony went on, but obviously with Lyndon B. Johnson instead and Annie is like, well, I was going to give the president like these boots or whatever it was. But she goes, I'm going to give you a bolo tie instead <laughs> because I feel like that's more your style. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, she gave him a beaded bolo tie to show her gratitude, which is so sweet. That is sweet. Um, but everything about this huge honor was tainted. It was overshadowed. For oh, sure. Totally overshadowed. And I mean, the first Native American yeah. to get the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I mean... Think about the centuries of mm-hmm. bad blood between these communities. Yeah. And she is the first person honored mm-hmm. with this and also like willing to accept it because there, yeah. I'm sure there is a bunch of negativity there. Like in the sense of like, no, my dad is the chief, you know, like not you, you're not in charge yep. of me. <laughs> yep. I mean, Life Magazine was going to do a whole spread about Annie and the work that she was doing and it was going to be like this cementing of her legacy. And then they scrapped the whole thing because now it was tied to JFK being assassinated. Right. And now that's all everybody could talk about. And now it was, it was all fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that happens a lot that news stories 
end up getting pushed that could yeah. have been on a positive note but people love reading about tragedy well i think about um who was it that died the same day as michael jackson it oh. was like farrah fawcett yeah. i think yeah and <laughs> not that this is similar at all i want to make that clear <gasps> but like but it's overshadowed it's it's overshadowed they died on the same day and of course like everything everyone was MJ. A, everything was about mj yeah so anyways so after all this <laughs> she ends up moving off her range off her ranch and like she gets a place in town with one of her daughters she goes i guess i'll take one kid off of your hand and she starts to focus more attention on the youth she goes okay i've got tb patients i've got the general pop public i've got alcoholics she goes i think i need to focus on the children right so she works on getting more kids into schools and then she helps kids buy clothes for school and school supplies because she goes, all right, yes, we got them into school, but like they also need to like be okay when they get there. Like she's thinking about the other things that like government programs are often lacking. Yeah. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of basic yeah, needs. She's looking at the full thing. She goes, Okay, but if a kid goes to school and he doesn't have fucking shoes, then like, yeah. what is he going to focus on? He needs. Comfort. He doesn't have shoes. <laughs> yeah. Like, he can't do math homework if he doesn't have shoes. The hierarchy of needs. So she's taking care of the school kids, and then she's also ma- trying to make life better for Navajo babies. The rate of like, you know, the what is it called? You said infant it mortality. Rate. Infant mortality rate, not good. She obviously knows this very personally. She goes, a lot of my babies had, like, problems, you know, when they were young and when I was giving birth to them. And so she goes, I want to make sure that babies on the reservation are doing okay. And I want to make sure they're not malnourished. I want to make sure they're getting the medical treatment they need. And, you know, she was like, Navajo babies have twice the (laughs) – I wrote it on the next page. Twice Twice the the infant infant mortality mortality rate rate. than white babies. (laughs) Just like anything, we need to help these babies. Yeah. So. It's double. That's problematic. This is going to sound fucked up. Yeah. But I'm going to explain how smart it is. She hosts a baby beauty pageant. A series of baby beauty pageants. Interesting. She thought this would be a good way to entice people to come out with their babies. And it worked. She was like come out we'll tell you how cute your baby is and maybe you'll win a prize maybe it's money maybe it's free diapers and maybe the judges are doctors who can do a little bit of a checkup while we're here (laughs) so smart come on out i'm gonna trick you all these babies start coming because Literally, what does any parent want? They want you to tell you that their baby looks cute. Beautiful. Even though, as my sweet, sweet friend Caitlin said, she goes, it's okay. My baby looks like Mitch McConnell, and everybody's okay with (laughs) it. Every baby looks like Every baby looks like an old man, and we love them. (laughs) Do we? (laughs) (laughs) Some of us do. Some of us do. So she goes, everybody loves when people say that their baby looks cute. Let's bring them into this place. Let's offer them a prize for bringing their baby to just like a basic checkup. And let's just make sure from a medical standpoint (laughs) that they're doing okay. Yeah. And they're not being abused or malnourished or whatever. And it fucking works. I mean, 
And this was so smart because a lot of these babies, this was the only time they had ever seen a doctor. Mm. So this is just a huge thing. I just want to applaud her for that because I think it's very intelligent. (laughs) Then in the 1970s, um, the government, oh no, she lobbied against, uh, so (sighs) this part was really fuzzy on. The government found, like, I think oil on some of the Navajo land. So uh-huh. they wanted to get the Navajo off of that land. So she lobbied against Again? That. Again? <laughs> Again? Again? Why are we still doing this? So she goes, don't take us off of the land. And they're like, yeah, but there's all this oil and like, we want it and you're not doing anything with it. So she's like, okay, I'm tight with DC now. So she gets the Department of Mental Health to do a study on the mental health effects of forced removal on people. And they're like, yeah, it totally increases the risk of depression and suicide. But the government was like, mm, that's not enough proof for us. So they go ahead and displace a bunch of the Navajo that's for terrible. the resources. Um, okay, next thing. She helps create a health advisory board for the Navajo. This board would lobby the U.S. Department of Health for sufficient funds, and it also kept the tribal council updated on a more regular basis so they could catch health issues more easily. So it was like, we caught tuberculosis too late (laughs) because we only knew when it was a huge problem. So now she goes, why don't we have a council that's in charge of letting us know when health problems are popping up. Right. So then we can research it. Yes. And then we can kind of nip it in the bud. Right. Um, So also another thing that this council did was it doubled the budget for Indian health services. Very exciting. Then in 1970, President Nixon was like, wow, now that we're getting more updates on the Native American healthcare system because of this council that Annie started and all the work that she's fucking doing, he goes, we're seeing that only 2.4% of Indian health service leaders are Native Americans. And he goes, that is not a lot of Native doctors compared to the population that they're serving. We need so some president, representation. President Nixon did some fucked up things, but he goes, we should change that. Yeah. <laughs> that's not okay. So, and he's like, great, let's set up a medical school geared towards Native Americans. She worked on this project for five years. Whoa. And you know who killed it? Chairman Peter McDonald. He was a part of the Navajo Tribal Council or whatever, and he was like, at the last minute, I think we should make this a Navajo-only medical school. And Annie's like, that's so dumb. No. (laughs) That's so stupid. And he goes, no, I'm going to push for that. So he pushes for it to be Navajo-only, and then the other tribes were like, well, then I'm not going to put up money for this. And the U.S. government was like, yeah, we're going to back out too then. And the whole thing fell apart. Isn't that so irritating? That is so, so irritating because it's, I mean, the goal from the U.S. government is we need more Native American representation yeah. in the field of medicine, yeah. which like, that's shocking to me shocking. that that even happened. <laughs> Maybe it's not even true. Who knows? Yeah. Listen, we I got my source. We want on this I had show. one source this episode. Yeah. So, Sam Patel, I'm really relying on you <laughs> um, or my interpretation of you. Maybe I got this all wrong. Yeah, who knows? But, anyways, um, so this isn't good, but 
to, you know, kind of do what we do. Now, Annie wasn't always in the right. There was one time where there was like this white lawyer guy coming in and he was offering legal services to Native Americans, but she didn't trust it. I was a little fuzzy on this story as well. So she tried to work around the rules and she was like, I'm going to remove you from the reservation. I don't want you here. But it kind of seemed like he was trying to do a good thing. Like he was trying to offer free legal services. Which so, is like, what's another thing that there isn't a lot of? Yeah. Like- so he was like, no, no, I'm a lawyer. I also know the rules this way and that way. And he fought against it and he won. So he was allowed to stay on the reservation. And apparently at one of the meetings, she like walked past him and just started like slapping him. But she had like a pen knife in her hand. She didn't stab his face. I want to be clear. The pen knife was closed. It was kind of like a Swiss army knife. Oh, okay. So it was closed, but it was a blunt object. She's, she's hitting him with this blunt object. What are you head. doing? I don't know. <laughs> That's may have. How can you be that angry at this guy? I don't know. Did she just like having all the solutions herself? I think so. Yeah. So then of course, some people accused her of being too radical and being anti-white. And she would always say, Look, I'm not anti-white. I'm just enthusiastically pro-Navajo, okay. which I love that. Yep. So as the 70s went on, the tribal council was embroiled in a lot of scandals and just plain old bad luck. Like there was some sketchy election stuff going on. And then they were $13 million over budget. And then 7 million pounds of grain went missing. And then there was a horrible plane crash that killed two of the council members. Oh Crazy. Honestly, final destination. I'm sorry. This I, I know. But Annie's plugging away. And she's like, you know what? A lot of the men on this council are being kind of sketchy. I don't think that these 7 million pounds of grains and these $13 million went away without somebody knowing what the fuck was going on. So she goes, I'm done with being the only woman in the room. I'm going to get in on the women's movement and talk to Navajo women and see what's up. It is the 70s. It's the 70s. Some of the men in charge didn't like that she was doing this. Surprise. And one of them even said to her in a meeting, Women have no business talking about themselves. <laughs> what else are we going to talk about? What else are we going to... Literally. <laughs> I mean, I make a living doing it. Let me tell you, too. Jane Fonda said this recently. I'm going to promo this on my, you know, promo or later. But she was like, one of the reasons that, like, men are so fucked up is, like, all they talk about are things outside of themselves. And women talk about themselves. <laughs> and she goes... Men need to talk about themselves as well. She goes, you know, men are always talking about like that sports car, that sports game, that pr- the thing or right, whatever. Not like, I feel I yeah. am I'm this, I'm that. Yeah. Interesting. So Jane Fonda. Okay. So women don't have any business talking about themselves. <laughs> so she obviously didn't listen. And she goes, you know what? I'm going to fire up the Subaru. I don't know. She drove a Subaru, but I'm guessing. Yeah. And she starts driving all across the Navajo Nation. She loves to drive in the desert. And she starts going to women. She asks them, what's up? How are you feeling? Do you have any problems that you think can be solved at a systemic level? I've already won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, but I'm still doing the fucking grunt work. And she ends up talking at the first Southwest Indian Women's Conference in 1975. 
She spoke to Native women, and she goes, you are not second-class citizens. You can be in politics. You can go to school. You can do more than you are being told is possible right now. And she just kind of, she like kind of starts this whole big feminist movement on the reservations because she goes, I literally drove around New Mexico or Arizona and I talked to people and they, these women are feeling like they literally can't do this and they can. So after this, she gets some more awards. She gets an honorary doctorate from the university. Also, she got like a, she got a college degree at some point. I just never found out when it was. She just worked it in, you know. In her schedule. In her schedule. Um, so And that's like back before there were like internet classes. Yeah. Like she had to fucking attend college. She had to go to the class. Like who does that? That Subaru <laughs> is getting a lot of mileage. <laughs> I would love it if she actually did drive Subaru a Subaru. Outback. I don't even <laughs> know when it was is. invented. It was probably like in the 90s. And I'm just assuming she drove Subarus? a Subaru Outback. <laughs> no. That's like a, isn't it like a Japanese company? Oh, I guess Subaru. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were definitely invented before that. But I don't know if they were here yet. Who knows? I'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> we should probably add like a fact check portion because to this. Because I have when a we're Subaru like sober. that I love. <laughs> I forgot that you drive a Subaru. I love it. Okay. It's a little granola for me, but I do yeah. love it. <laughs> <laughs> I've driven your car. It's nice. I it drove it to nice. New York. It's really nice. Okay. So she gets her honorary doctorate from the University of New Mexico. She's in Arizona, though. But they're all around the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four corners and all. I'm hoping I've gotten that information correct this whole time. Now I'm doubting myself. And she's thinking it might be time for her to retire. But of course, her colleagues are like, no, Annie, please save her one more term. So she's like, okay, I'll run for office one more time. July 15th, 1953 is when Subaru was established. Uh, fits in with our timeline, everybody. I just <laughs> want to say it. Real. She was uh, first inducted, <laughs> first put into the council in 1951. Add it to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Annie Dodgewaneka drove a Subaru. <laughs> okay. I'm also just saying Subaru as if it's one car. Yep. So like, stay for one more term. And she goes, okay, I'll run for office. And then she lost by 13 points. What? 13 votes you to someone else. people begged her to stay? And he was like, yeah, guys, that's what I thought. I'm yeah. done. I'm so over this. I should have quit while I was ahead. A girl knew. Agreed. Um, that's also my motto. <laughs> but it's not like she's totally out of a job. She's still on all these boards and committees. She's still on, like, like the head of the grazing council. It's like, I think we have moved beyond the sheep, Annie. She loves the sheep. Then in 1979, she celebrates her 50th wedding anniversary with George. <laughs> Weird weird to remember him after all this i hate you <laughs> no reason to i just do we don't talk about george okay True. they're still together despite all the craziness of their relationship and i like to think of them as dolly parton and her husband okay i'm like maybe and neighbors jolene neighbors jolene but jolene is now like welcomed into the relationship Um, But also, Annie's working way more than a nine to five. Yeah. (laughs) Annie's working like a... Five to 10.30. She's working midnight to dawn, and everybody knows it. That's short. I'd also... (laughs) Midnight to dawn is just like... (laughs) I'm sorry. Dawn to midnight. Okay. Well, actually, no, that's... I'm sorry. She's working a Googleplex to a Googleplex, and everybody knows it. Okay. We'll say that, because that's a number that nobody cares about. It's not a real number. Yeah. I like 
to her, I'd like to feel like Annie and her husband, George, are just like, this is a relationship. We're okay with it. Yeah. So that's nice because then Annie's off to China. (laughs) This story, I could not put in a straight line if I fucking tried. The Chinese government invited her over in 1980. So now we're in the 80s. Thank God. (laughs) And she meets with them again. You are going to laugh when you see her Wikipedia page. It is this big. She goes to meet with them about building an alliance between American Indians and the Chinese. (laughs) I didn't know the thing. So she's over there. They're talking about stuff. They're taking her around. And she goes, wow, like we are kind of similar, especially when they come across a field of sheep. And she goes, Guys, I do sheep. I sheep. I I I heard you sheep. We sheep. I love this. She goes, check this out. And counts them and then falls asleep. I thought she was going to hurt them. (laughs) No, what does she do? She She butchers one of the sheep. Ah! She butchers one of the sheep. She builds a fire. She cooks it for everyone. They ate the ribs. She teaches them a Navajo dance. They are having a very good time, thank God. Because if she had done this to me, I would have been very upset. Aren't a lot of them like Buddhists? Aren't a lot of them like not don't eat so meat? So I think them? that this is kind of like plains, you know, oh, uh, rural okay. China, More kind like of like indigenous China. In, yes, okay. because also like there's also this like theory that. <laughs> Native Americans came from Chinese people that like walked across the Bering Strait. And it's like, like, why can't they just be their own people? During like the land bridge? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, why can't they just be their own people that were also here? Like, (laughs) anyways, I don't really agree with that theory. But anyways, they love it. Um, You know, they're doing their thing. They're eating the ribs. And then she goes back home. Nothing comes of this, but I thought it was just a fun story. Okay. Yeah, that is fun. She's enjoying her semi-retirement, uh, and then she becomes a campaign manager for an up-and-coming <laughs> young guy running for chairman of the tribal council. Love that. Um, and then she is the ambassador for the Indian health system, of course. Right. And Who then else is she gonna do it? is against serving on all the boards. She's still on all these committees. Yeah. She loves a committee. I need to be a board member. I feel like that's <sighs> what I was born to do. Yes, I agree. She's in her 70s. She's spry as ever. She gets even more awards. There is an Annie Dodge Winneka Day established in Arizona. She gets the Navajo Medal of Honor, which she said is the, you know, it's the highest honor given by the Navajo Nation. And it is the one she's most proud of. I'm sure. The most proud of. So she's doing all this. But as Annie gets into her 80s, something felt off. And she goes to the doctors, and they diagnosed her with Alzheimer's. Oh. Annie and George didn't hesitate. They were like, leave the range to the kids, sell it, do whatever. We're moving into a retirement community. They were just like, we're not going to fuck around with this for a couple more years and see how it goes. Like, we got the diagnosis. We're going. And so with this move, Annie Dodge Winneka finally, officially, I guess, retired in 1993 after (laughs) decades of public service. George died in 1994. And then in 1997, Annie was diagnosed with leukemia and died just a month later on November 10th. She was 87 years old. 
The Navajo government shut down for the day to pay their respects, and Annie was buried in a small ceremony um, with her family on the ranch where her family and the sheep she loved so much roamed. This is fitting because once she was getting honored, someone said about Annie that she wasn't just a shepherdess for the sheep. She was a shepherdess for the Navajo people, always making sure that they were safe and well taken care of. She lived long and well and always abided by her famous quote, I'll go and do more. And that is the story of Annie Dodgewanecka. Wow. I mean, what a life force. And and that is just like also like me like glossing over some of the like others like I mean you have to with a story like so much yeah that's crazy and again I would encourage everyone to look at her Wikipedia page it is so tiny Mm -hmm. so if anyone has the power to like expand on it a little bit (laughs) I would love that add some things all right well now we need to talk about Anne and Annie together in a little segment we like to call just the two of us I mean, so much women's power, so so much much medicine, so much knowledge being shared. This is incredible. It really is. And I almost think that it all can also be, not all, but like there's a kinship they share too. And like they had farmer dads. Right. And I feel like their dads were important to them and which we see a lot in these stories like dads who believed in them and who treated them the same even though the world was treating them different because you think about Anne and annie growing up like annie is literally being treated different in her own household like her siblings like you don't belong here um which by the way she found out that she was you know not her mother's daughter when her mother died and they're like Oh, well, you didn't get anything in the will because you are not her daughter, which is traumatic. Yeah. Um, didn't really know where to put that in. But and then I feel like Anne is growing up in the 1800s and just always being told, no, like you don't belong in this school. You don't belong in that school. And like no matter how many people you have, like close knit around you telling you yes, like because I think they both had their dads. They both mm-hmm. had some sort of community that was like, we believe in you, like it's hard to really take that step when everyone, like the greater world, the majority is telling you no. Yeah. And they both, like, I, the the Quaker people, I think, are very similar to the way that, like, a Native American tribe would be mm-hmm. run. It's politics. It's religion. Mm-hmm. It's community. And you could just see that they, both these women took what they were taught as a young person Mm -hmm. about morals about ethics about how to exist and care for other human beings and we're like oh well that's the way the world is supposed to function yeah and then they got out into the world and realized it doesn't function that way so they both said i'm gonna make it function that way yeah they and i love that they were too like we're talking about fucking boots on the ground hooves on the buggy like if no one is going to do this at a systemic level. I'm going to do it on such a personal level yeah. that like the system will have to follow because I'm so successful. Yeah. And that's what both of them did. Yeah. They're like, I'm just going to do it myself. Annie's and riding the world on trains even when they're yeah. getting derailed. <laughs> I know. <laughs> when also they did it later in life. Yeah. They said that Anne was 38 years old. When she started school. When she started school. And Annie had already had what seven Seven kids kids. and then she had two more in the process like that is crazy to me i don't know where these women find the time but 
Yeah, and like, and when we say late in life, it's like that's that was when they started. So think yeah. about when they hit their peak of success. They're probably in their fifties, their sixties, like when people just mm-hmm. start to give them a, an inkling of respect. Yeah, and it's all about bridging gaps, specifically the medical gap. Oh yeah, because these were two women who thought it doesn't matter who you are, how much money you make, you should have access to healthcare. You shouldn't have to die from tuberculosis just because you are living on this reservation. You shouldn't have to die in childbirth just because, like, you're not a wealthy white man who's worthy to save and Mm -hmm. worthy to be, like, be listened to. It's like, it's just kind of like they're trying to make the world see that other people besides the general norm matter Yeah, in the medical community, which is like, everyone has the right to life. Yeah, Like this, like, sorry, right to life. That is like a pro-choice or pro-life term that I did not mean to yes, use. But the but, right to life is the, like the first thing listed in the human rights declaration. Yes. With Eleanor Roosevelt, like you have the right to so, like, live. Yes. To be a living person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's frustrating that like, they had to tell people, like, okay, these people are dying unnecessarily. The Navajo people were dying of very preventable diseases. Mm-hmm. Like, women were dying because, like, doctors just didn't care to see them. Like, And they both had this re- – they had a view of the bigger picture of, like, mm-hmm. yes, I can reach as many people as possible one-on-one, mm-hmm. but – When that's not possible anymore, I have to have the institution built up Mm -hmm. that's going to carry this to more people and the next generation. They are institution builders, both of them. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. And institution building by very, very personal example of, like, literally, let me show you Uh what I mean. You said moral active examples. Yeah. Because... Sometimes it takes that one-on-one experience with someone to change your whole fucking life. Right. And I think both of these women changed people's lives by just talking to them personally, which I think we're, we kind of lose in this age of information. It's like, because you as an Instagram influencer, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but like, because like, you as one person can reach so many. It's, it's like, the one-to-many strategy. Yes. And I think that we're kind of losing that one-on-one strategy that I think really helped both of these women gain trust in people. And I think the people that are doing one-on-one strategy are using it to bad means. Yeah. You know, and but, it kind of worries me a little bit. <laughs> I mean, think about community, though, too. Like, she knew if like white doctors came in and told the medicine men in the Navajo tribe, like you're, they would have been condescending. You're wrong. And they would have treated them like they were stupid. And Mm -hmm. I think that Anne was doing the same thing by Mm -hmm. training, um, doctors and women that were different races and different social classes saying like, you can go back to that community and not belittle them because that's what happens to people who don't have access to medical treatment. Mm -hmm. They're belittled by these like people who were raised in ivory towers, like, and, and they just treat people like they're stupid, even sometimes without meaning to. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not saying that everybody who was wealthy and got a formal education is an asshole. It's just right. you don't understand that society. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Well, and I thought about, too, like, Anne started the Women's Hospital of Philadelphia. And Annie was trying so hard to start the Navajo Medical School. Right. And it's annoying to me that, like, the Navajo Medical School failed because 
a guy kind of came in and tried to make it less inclusive. Right. And it's like, that is the whole point of these two schools is to make this medical community more inclusive. And like by limiting it, you are limiting people's access to care that could literally save their lives. And their interest in it. Mm-hmm. Everybody lost interest when it was inclusive. Yeah. Or like non-inclusive. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I don't know. I just think that both of these women, like you said, they're institution builders. And it's funny because their personal lives were very different. One had nine kids, one had none, and was mm-hmm. living in some kind of like hippie female commune, which I'm totally cool with. Um, but, you know, it's like I also like that you don't have to live a certain like be a certain type of woman in your personal life to make huge changes Mm because i think sometimes women can be very similar personally and then very different in their work lives and these women were very different personally and very similar in their work lives and i love that it's very cool Mm. wow all right you ready to toast i'm ready to toast Allie. who would you like to toast this evening i want to toast the women who are not just going to take what they can get for themselves, but who are also dragging society to a screeching halt until every woman gets on the platform. Yeah, I love it. Bring it. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) I'm going to toast the women who actually go and solve the problems and do the work. Annie didn't just do more. She did the fucking most. And (laughs) I just, I was so impressed with her literally taking one person by one person by one person to look into the tiny scope of a microscope and be like, I will witness to you as literal, as minuscule as a germ to get you to listen to me and take this, you know, as something to be like, as something important, right? you know? And I just, I love that she did that. So to women who do it. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay, so I'm going to promo a book, of course. (laughs) And it's called The Buddha's in the Attic. It's very short. Um, And I have never read a book like this. I had to actually ask Sister, like, what is it called? And she said it was called, like, The First Person Collective We. Because the story is told from first person but everything is we did this and we did that Hmm. and some of us did this and some of us did that Mm -hmm. but it starts in japan with women who are being um made brides of japanese men that are in california and they're being sent across the ocean to men they've never met and it talks about their experience on the boat their experience getting to the united states and this is happening in between World War One and World War Two, oh, and it takes you through the experience of these women all the way up to being put in um, American internment camps because they were Japanese. <gasps> oh my god! And it is written so interestingly because if it followed one woman, you would get one person's story. Yeah. But this gives you all the possibilities from mm-hmm. abuse to happy marriages mm-hmm. to having a really successful business to being sleeping on street corners because you and your husband can't find work. It was just so interesting. But then yeah. the book ends in empty neighborhoods in San Francisco and the white people being like, where did all our friends go? 
mm-hmm. and being clueless and like talking about how maybe they should have paid more attention. Yeah. And then it's kind of like, but two weeks later, they're just going to forget about the Japanese people. Yeah. It is wild, magical. Yeah, and it's like none of what I just told you are spoilers. It is just like it was like really hard to read at first because I'm not used to the first person collective we. I didn't know what that was, but it was really, really good. That's good. Okay, excellent. Very short, easy to read. You could finish it in two days. Oh, perfect. Okay, what are you liking? All right, I'm going to recommend another podcast. It's called We Can Do Hard Things, and I found out about it from our friend Joanne. Mm-hmm. She posted um, like an episode with Tracy Ellis Ross, who I love. Yeah. So of course I listened to that one, and then I started listening to more. And I just I love here like I don't know the Tracy Ellis Ross episode is good. The fortune Feimster episode is good. And the Jane Fonda episode. Those are the only three I've listened to. I want right. to make that clear, but Tracy Ellis Ross is such an interesting person because and I feel like I've learned like a little bit about where I want to be from these podcasts and like who I also have been. And one thing from the Tracy Ellis episode where she was talking about you know, when I go into a situation now, she goes, you know, I'm not a big celebration person. She goes, I grew up being a celebration person because she's she like, my mom was Diana Ross. She yeah. goes, she made a huge deal about fucking everything. Yeah. And she goes, but then when I was an adult, she was like, I realized I didn't like that. Mm. But she goes, but then I was turning 50 and I wanted to have a big 50th birthday party. And she goes, and I had a talk with myself and I said, how do I want to feel when this event is over? And she goes, and I wrote it out. And she goes, and then that was in the back of my mind while I was going through the whole event. And she goes, and I was making decisions based on, like, how do I want to feel at the end of this? Which I thought was so smart. It's so mindful. And I love that. And then, of course, the Jane Fonda episode was just great because she talks a lot about, like, her disassociating from her body and all this other stuff. And it's just, like, this woman Glennon Doyle is, like, very – she's, like, friends with a lot of these people. I read her book. Oh, did Glennon you? Glennon Doyle. Yeah, I read one of her books. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. w- would like to get to know her more because I've never heard of her before. So she's really interesting. Her first couple books, she was happily married. Uh-huh. Uh, and her first couple books are about Christianity and how <gasps> people should be Christians. Whoa. But she is currently divorced and a lesbian. Yeah. And wrote books about realizing that about yourself. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. See, I, did, I didn't even know that. Yeah. So, and I don't know. I just like... She has these very, very thoughtful conversations with these people, and I've just been really enjoying it. So yeah. thank you, Joanne, for the recommendation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd like to pass it on to other people. Mm-hmm. And also, I love the title of it because I have been trying to tell myself more often that I can do hard things. Mm-hmm. I can do things that I'm afraid of. And I think that that's an important kind of a mantra to have. Yeah. Is I can do hard things. You can so. do it. You can do it scared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, doing it scared is better than not doing it yeah. at all. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. We love what you a so blast. Much. We love you. What a great show. Oh, 
This is wonderful. Inspiring and, women I knew nothing yes. about. Yeah. Um, so that's great. You can find us everywhere. Mm-hmm. Social media. Um, you can obviously listen to our podcast because you're doing that right now. We have a patron if you want to keep the party going. So you can be a, a Patreon member for as little as a dollar a month. You can get some stuff in the mail every now and again. You can get perks, information early. You get to help us pick our women for the seasons. Mm-hmm. We've gotten a lot of great suggestions mm-hmm. recently. And um, you and- you can listen to a little extra. Yeah. We have an extra five to ten mm-hmm. minutes every week about a random topic. Sometimes we're really wasted. It's way too personal. <laughs> um, but we're really thankful for all of our wonderful friends over there. Yeah. We love you. Yeah. So keep up with us. And also never forget that well-behaved women. Don't get medical degrees. Oh, they don't. And they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.